0: I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine's Soul. Today's guest is Louis Grossman. He is professor of law at the Washington College of Law, where he has taught since 1997 and where he served as associate dean for scholarship from 2008 to 2011 and in 2022. He teaches and writes in the areas of American legal history, food and drug law, health law, and civil procedure. He has also been a visiting professor of law at Cornell Law School and a law and public affairs fellow at Princeton University. In October 2021, Oxford University Press published Professor Grossman's book, Choose Your Medicine, Freedom of Therapeutic Choice in America. His scholarship has appeared in the Cornell Law Review, Yale Journal of Health Policy, the New England Journal of Medicine, among many others. Lewis, thanks for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me, Aaron.
0: Absolutely. You know, when you teach your food and drug law class, you said that you start off by presenting the case of, of Abigail Burroughs. So maybe you can, as a nice introduction to this show, take us through that case and the kind of various arguments involved in it.
1: Sure. And it's actually the start of the portion of my course on drug regulation. We've already spent a month and a half on food regulation, which is also a passion of mine before we get to Abigail's case. But Abigail Burroughs was a, a young woman who went to the University of Virginia and developed head and neck cancer. And after every other option was tried and failed, her Johns Hopkins doctors suggested that she try one of two drugs that had gotten through the earliest testing phase of uh, the drug testing regimen known as phase one testing but had not even started phase two or phase three uh, three testing. It's those phases that are really uh, designed to show effectiveness of a drug. She sought to obtain them and failed and tragically died. And then her father founded a organization called Abigail Alliance, which brought a lawsuit saying that terminally ill patients in situations like Abigail's should have a substantive due process right to obtain drugs after successful phase one trials. Substantive due process, by the way, is a legal theory. Um, based on the very spare words of the 14th Amendment and the 5th Amendment, which is the very same theory that was used to support Roe v. Wade, the uh, recently overruled abortion case, Dobbs. the In a kind of surprising uh, victory at the D.C. Circuit, which is the D.C. Federal Appellate Court, often called the second most important court in the country, Abigail Alliance initially won this case two to one, with a fascinating alliance between a very conservative judge and a very liberal judge, which leads to one of the themes in my book, which is the kind of political category transcending aspect of medical freedom issues. Uh, Abigail Alliance ended up losing uh, before the full D.C. Circuit in, in a very influential decision. The test that was used in Abigail Alliance was from a case called Glucksburg, which asks whether or not the fundamental right being asserted is deeply rooted in American history. Now, I'm a PhD historian as well as a lawyer, and history is more and more becoming a part of constitutional jurisprudence in America. And I decided to dive into the history and figure out which side had the more accurate vision of American traditions concerning freedom of therapeutic choice. And that was my entree into the project. But even before I started the project, I was always fascinated when I would ask my students at American University, a school with a, a proud progressive tradition, who would you vote for in this dispute? Would you let Abigail get access to these drugs or not? And Uh, These self-defined liberals, obviously not all of them, but many of them, raise their hands for the libertarian position in this context, saying that uh, people in Abigail's situation should be able to access an unproved drug for their terminal illness. And it is obviously a very profound question. Um, It is also a question that touches on some really, really important questions of drug regulation. Because, as I would point out to my students, perhaps the best argument against allowing Abigail to access drugs in this situation is that if drug companies could sell the drugs after phase one testing, they would never have any incentive to do phase two testing and phase three testing. And therefore, we would never know whether the drugs worked or not. And That turns really into a question almost of individualism versus altruism. Should people be forcibly put into the position of potentially taking a placebo instead of uh, the drug that might help them for the betterment of society? And I was always intrigued that even after I raised that paradox, my students would still overwhelmingly say that Abigail should be allowed to buy the drug. Now, it's kind of a false binary because there's there's ways to try to massage that issue, to try to protect clinical research while you're also providing access. And indeed, FDA does that. But even presented in that binary way, my students favored access in that situation.
0: It's fascinating. And it's one of the things I find most interesting about the concept of therapeutic choice in the United States is how these seemingly as you mentioned like disparate or polarized political groups come to agree with each other and join forces in support of or opposition to uh, this therapeutic choice where do you think like maybe you can give us some outlines of where conservatives liberals libertarians progressive typically fall in these, highly controversial situations. Like, is there a kind of reliable trend where libertarians and progressives sort of agree on this and conservatives and left of center folks, you know, take the other side?
1: Not really. You know, there's uh, different styles of argument on the two sides. But in my research in modern times, the only people who were Predictably pro regulation in a way that restricted choice were the kind of Ralph Nader era pro regulation legislators like Waxman and Kennedy and people like that. But you saw some really weird alliances uh, between, including some people that we've grown familiar with in the news over the past years. So, but Barney Frank, for example was on the same side as Rand Paul's father. I'm blanking on his name. Rand Paul, Paul. Paul's father. Yeah. Marijuana legalization, if I remember correctly. On a supplement regulation, you had Orrin Hatch teaming with Tom Harkin, the great liberal senator from from Iowa, I believe. You see again and again these strange, strange to most people, not strange to me anymore, alliances. Now. Where that libertarian comes from, libertarianism comes from, is very different. I think that the women's health movement is a large part of progressive medical freedom philosophy, the notion of bodily autonomy that was built up around the abortion rights movement in the early 1970s. Whereas from the conservative side of the spectrum, I think that they sometimes embrace bodily freedom rhetoric, but I think there's much more of just a general anti-government and even economic freedom aspect to their arguments. But the fact of the matter is, if you look at the, the rhetoric that's actually advanced by each side in these debates, they tend to draw on a rich array of different libertarian traditions in America that overlap with each other.
0: Hmm. Let's get into the the history a little bit. And I, I, one of the things I find so interesting about the book is that you know you take us through these various epics in American history and 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 how they are similar and different from each other. Let's start maybe with the American colonial era, the era of independence. What did what did orthodox medicine at the time look like, and and how did Americans respond to to this kind of orthodox view of medicine?
1: I think it's very important to understand that orthodox medicine until the 20th century did not really have much greater claim to efficacy than than its rivals. They wrapped their approaches in highfalutin titles and Latin and university education and so forth. And of course, they were widely respected and followed, but they followed a approach often called heroic medicine, which was a massively interventionist, depleting approach to medicine uh, based on the balance of the four humors or other forces in the body, which led them to do things like massive bleeding and blistering and liberal use of purgatives and emetics. And the most famous example of this was George Washington on his deathbed, who was suffering from some sort of throat infection. We don't know exactly what. And you know, a very large portion of his blood was taken from his body. And I think that uh, blisters were applied. And it it was sort of from the perspective of a lot of opponents of Orthodox medicine, both old and 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 modern, uh, kind of like a brutal and useless approach to medicine. And so there were always alternative approaches, approaches in America. Early on, the most prominent and popular ones were botanical approaches, but there were always various types of folk medicine traditions and just non-orthodox medical approaches. And it's important also to understand that very intensive drug regulation didn't really start to occur in the United States until the 20th century, but another form of medical regulation extends all the way back into the country's earliest years, and that is medical licensing. And medical licensing Was used by Orthodox medicine to try to suppress access to unorthodox practitioners. And in a situation where what defines an unorthodox practitioner is the types of drugs or other products he uses, medical licensing can verge on a type of drug licensing. So, in any case, if you look all the way back into the sparse, colonial record, you find debates about medical licensing uh, in Connecticut in the 1780s, I think. And what's fascinating to me is a lot of the very same themes that pop up in Trump era medical libertarianism arguments pop up right from the beginning in those legislative debates.
0: Can you take us through some of those themes? I mean, I'm sure people will be familiar with them, but maybe just so we can explicitly outline them.
1: Well, I think people will be familiar with them, but I don't know that they necessarily will have sort of thought of them as distinct strains worth paying attention to, because in the modern age, post-Roe v. Wade, bodily freedom is often the dominant position in medical libertarianism and freedom of choice. In fact, even in anti-vaccine and anti-shutdown protests during the pandemic, you saw people using that language on their placards and things like that. Uh, Freedom of choice, it's my body, things like that. But it turns out that interestingly, bodily freedom as the dominant notion in Medical freedom rhetoric is a fairly new development in in American history. And there have always been other very important strains. One of them is economic freedom. Sometimes economic freedom arguments are simple free market arguments that the value of practitioners and products should be determined by the market. Um, People will only pay for what's effective and safe. But there's another important strain indeed dominant strain in economic freedom rhetoric in America, which is anti-monopolism, the notion that trusts squelch the freedom of people and professionals. And this goes all the way back to the country's earliest years. After all, the Boston Tea Party was protest against the East India company, I mean, uh, a government-sanctioned monopoly. But you see this strain go all the way through American history. Accusations that organized medicine, or later the AMA, or the pharmaceutical industry, are engaged in a sometimes conspiratorial trust with government actors to enrich themselves on the backs of American patients. Another important strain is freedom of religion. There has always been a close connection between religion and medicine in America. And you see an astonishing amount of religious freedom rhetoric going all the way back to the earliest years of the Republic. Sometimes it's an analogical invocation of religion, comparing the choice of a doctor and a therapy to choice of a church and a clergy person, but especially as time goes on and more and more spiritually infused medical sects arise, uh, the new thought school in the late, late 19th century, which was a kind of a mental therapeutic school that was very popular, Christian science, a lot of times freedom of religion and freedom of therapeutic choice merge into an almost Indistinguishable right. And then, even when it's not explicitly religious, for much of American history, before modern medical science arose and we came up with the notion of the controlled clinical trial to uh, establish drug efficacy, there was a strong opinion embraced even by the US Supreme Court that medical efficacy is a matter of opinion or conscience. And it somehow violates American democratic constitutional principles to force people to make one choice rather than another in a situation of uncertainty. And then finally, there's a very important strain of freedom of inquiry. The notion that if you don't let a thousand flowers bloom, if you don't let doctors around the country experiment at the bedside in the hospital or in people's homes with different therapies, there's no way we're ever going to find out what, what works. And a strong embrace of the notion that some of the most important therapies were developed in this kind of trial and error way, oftentimes by not highly educated people. And this strain of medical freedom really collided full on with the rise of the adequate and well-controlled medical trial. Because if you think about that, uh, a system that says you are not allowed to use an unapproved drug except in a controlled clinical trial, and that controlled clinical trial must have a control group which might be taking a placebo but nobody knows who's taking the placebo and who's taking the the, the experimental drug. Is almost completely counter uh, therapeutic choice in that traditional sense. But that tradition never really died, and you can still see it as a you know freedom of therapy. Sorry, freedom of inquiry is still a very important theme in alternative medicine literature and even elsewhere.
0: It's very interesting. There are a lot of cool themes here. I- Maybe we'll start with the medical licensing theme. How did that regime change during the antebellum period, Civil War, you know, into the 20th century? What kind of thread can you weave for us? How did that look like?
1: In the earliest years of an independent America, state after state embraced medical licensing. And when I say medical licensing, I mean. Orthodox dominated medical licensing. The rigor of this, these regimes varied. In some, it was a crime to practice without a license. In other words, it was only a crime to charge for your services without a license. They were enforced to various degrees, but there was an undoubted trend as the early 1820s approach toward embracing medical licensing trying to remember, I think maybe something like 18 of 24 states embraced medical licensing during the the country's first uh, couple of decades. Then came the first great medical freedom movement in the United States, and that was led by the Thompsonians. Um, Samuel Thompson had an alternative school of medicine that was based on botanical Elements, namely Lobelia and Cayenne Pepper, as well as steam baths. And it was a wildly popular school of medicine, embraced largely by people of working class origins and rural people. It had a very close association with populist um, Jacksonian democracy. And using all of these themes we've discussed, And weaving them into a coherent constitutional argument, not a constitutional argument that was advanced in court, but a constitutional argument that was advanced in in legislatures, in the street, in petitions, and so forth. They managed, astonishingly, to basically wipe out medical licensing in the United States by the time of the Civil War. By 1860 there was not a single effectively operating medical licensing regime in the entire United States. Now licensing resurged after the Civil War as America embraced, you know, professionalism and organization and bureaucracy more, but it's important to note that the medical licensing that arose during what we call the Gilded Age, the 1880s, 1890s accommodated alternative approaches to medicine. So the two big competing schools during that period were homeopathy, which I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of, as well as eclectic medicine, which is not as well known now, but was a very, very popular botanical approach to medicine. And for the most part, the uh, eclectics and the homeopaths were included in the new licensing regimes. They were Either given seats at the table of the examining boards, or in some states, when it came to examinations on therapeutics or materia medica, they would have separate examinations for homeopaths and, and eclectics. And the, the other fascinating uh, thing that happened during this period was the accommodation of spiritual and, uh, and spiritually infused. Schools of medicine, be they Christian Science or or the New Thought movement or magnetic healing, which actually had nothing to do with magnets as we think of them, it had to do with kind of spiritual forces of various kinds. And in many, uh, in the in some of the New England states, they explicitly excluded those types of practitioners from the medical licensing regime. The famous Harvard Medical School. Professor slash pragmatist philosopher William James, the brother of the novelist Henry James, was a leading proponent of excluding those types of practitioners from medical licensing, from medical licensing. And in New England, in particular, that succeeded. Christian Science was excluded in some other places as well. But in looking at what a licensing regime really says about attitudes towards therapeutic choice. It's not enough to just look at the laws in the books. It's important to look at whether or not district attorneys are actually prosecuting the cases, whether juries are actually convicting people. And the answer for the most part in the late 19th century was no. And that these uh, alternative unorthodox medical schools continue to be left largely untroubled, untouched.
0: Hmm. You brought up the Thompsonians. My understanding from reading the book is that that started to thrive or really kind of hit its pinnacle in in the Jacksonian era, and to bring this idea of like there's this continuity to American history in a way, I I think people make the comparison to Trump that there's you know the Jacksonian populism is very similar to you know Trumpian populism. I just think that's kind of an interesting uh, analogy there to to think about a little bit.
1: Yeah, I agree, and it's occurred to me as well, and. Despite what I've said about the interesting sort of unusual bedfellows in the history of these issues, there have been times when there has definitely been a political valence to the leading medical freedom voices. And one of them was in the Jacksonian era with the Thompsonians, where their medical freedom rhetoric was infused with... An anti-elitism, an anti-expertise spirit that in many ways echoes kind of, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that everybody who is a, a skeptic about orthodox medicine during the uh pandemic, during COVID, was a Trump follower, but their polls do show that there was a striking correlation between political identification and those attitudes, which by the way is Hardly a given. I mean, if you just think of the 1970s and attitudes towards orthodox medicine, that was really a joinder of people from the right and people from the left, countercultural people. Nobody assumed before the pandemic that hyper-progressive people were necessarily vaccine fans. And yet there does seem to be this interesting party and political orientation to recent Medical freedom rhetoric that I found fascinating.
0: Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I remember reading about the the anti vaccination movement in the you know eighties, nineties, early two thousands, essentially pre pandemic, and a lot of it was far left, progressive kind of Berkeley types. Yeah. Um, yeah, And you know, it it it's so interesting to see these two ends kind of meet.
1: Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was one of the leading voices in anti-vaccination, and the political ambiguity of these issues is highlighted by the fact that in, in his recent presidential run, which I, I think is over, I'm not, I'm not sure whether he's still running, but, but it was very hard to categorize him. Is this far right, far left? And so I think that he's an interesting example of the difficulty in applying simple labels to these attitudes.
0: It, it, it's interesting to also to think about, like the scientific progress that has been made, while there's been this sort of seesawing of orthodox, you know, versus non-orthodox kind of medicine. It, you know, by the late nineteenth century, anesthesia was available, germ theor- theory of disease is percolated, diphtheria antitoxin been developed in the 1890s. Stethoscope had been invented. Antiseptic was beginning to be used. How did scientific development affect Americans' conception of therapeutic choice or orthodox or non-orthodox medicine?
1: I think it's undeniable that that as clear medical advances took hold, that the number of people who both embraced alternative medical approaches and and medical freedom rhetoric reduced, went down. But it's also important to think about um, different types of medical advances. Like you say, the stethoscope, you know. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's a, it's a little abstract for, you know, a person in Dubuque to say, oh, my God, they have a stethoscope now. I'm I'm not going to be a homeopath anymore. It really took a couple of really huge advances to lead to what I call the age of trust in the middle of the 20th century. I say in the book that there was one period in American history where skepticism about medicine and medical freedom rhetoric was really pushed to the fringes of American discussions. And that was from the end of World War II to the late 1960s, basically. Trust in medicine was incredibly high, as was trust in all major American institutions, including government. And that includes, of course, the government agencies that regulated medicine and the health agencies, corporations, including big drug companies, uh, as well as major religious institutions and the military and the media. And it was during this period that you do find sort of people on the fringe railing against conspiracies, including, by the way, conspiracies that tied the medical establishment to Jewish domination, to communism. I think the aspect of this that most people have heard of is the John Birch Society opposing fluoridation of water as a a communist conspiracy to destroy America. But what is it that led to that great period of trust? And I think it's partly America's triumph in World War II, which was aided tremendously by not just scientific accomplishments generally, but medical accomplishments in particular, the rise of antibiotics, modern antibiotics, a very important tool of war in terms of, you know, saving soldiers who in the Civil War would have almost, you know, inevitably died of sepsis. We're now we're now saving their lives. And then the polio vaccine. And, you know, the interesting thing about polio is it was a childhood d- disease and people were terrified of um of their children getting polio. And when the polio vaccine was invented in the early 1950s, it's interesting to contrast the American attitude towards that to the attitude toward the COVID vaccine. Because Americans by the millions rolled up their children's sleeves, not just their own sleeves, their children's sleeves, and subjected them not just to the polio vaccine after it was approved but even to the polio vaccine in trials um and uh, Jonas Salk who was the inventor of the first polio vaccine was an american hero in ways that you know young people today cannot imagine it is interesting to contrast his treatment by the media and you know sort of celebrity culture to to Fauci's in in recent years i did some I can't claim it's scientific research, but you went on to Google Ngram to try to figure out how Sock was appearing in the American, you know, print media and books and so forth. And he was as popular, or at least as prominent, as the baseball star Mickey Mantle or the movie star James Dean. And when they did polls of American school children and asked who do you admire most? There was this period of time when Jonas Salk, this beast, you know, this, you know, eyeglassed, bald, nerdy guy, was an American hero. That's a very different time from today.
0: Yeah, very different. Interesting. And just to put, I took note of some of the poll numbers that you uh, quote in the book just to give people a sense of like the quantitative nature of this trust. You know, in 1950s poll, 90% of Americans agreed that they usually have confidence that the government will do what is right. 90%. The
1: federal government.
0: I, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I I forget what the number is now, but it is, I mean, it's, it's so much lower than that, for sure. But
1: there's also numbers with medicine. So people tend to think of the 1960s as starting in 1960. The 1960s didn't start in 1960. The 1960s were really the 1970s. They were this period between, you know, around 65, 66, 67, it's when anti authoritarianism and mistrust really started to rise. As late as 1966, something like, and ap- apologies for maybe misremembering the exact number, but something like 79% of Americans trusted the leaders of American medicine to do what is, you know, right all or most of the time. And then just 14 years later, by 1980, that number had dropped to, again, I may be misremembering it, but something like 30%. And uh, government, of course, dropped even further. And so you see this massive decline in trust in America's uh, establishment institutions. And in fact, I'm now working on uh, starting a book that focuses specifically on that age, the 1970s, and looking at what happened there.
0: You explain this increase in tr- massive increase in trust, you know, as post World War II phenomena. But what do you think explains the like falling off of a cliff? What is the what's the reason behind that? You know, precipitous drop in trust.
1: I think that real world developments and events played a large part in it. I am just old enough to remember what the early 70s were like. It was a time of terrible, what was known as stagflation, where you had simultaneously a surge in unemployment and inflation, despite the efforts of the supposed economic experts. You had an oil embargo. You had a a disastrous situation in Vietnam, where America, despite its technological advantages, was unable to achieve victory. And then you have Watergate. And it's it's striking to me. In my book, I talk about a dispute about an alternative drug called Leotril for for cancer in the nineteen seventies. And I looked at these hearing transcripts uh, at an FDA hearing, and no less than four speakers linked their suspicion about what the FDA was doing and what organized medicine was doing to Watergate. It was a huge blow to America's confidence, Watergate. There were also a few very specific things that happened in the world of science and medicine that I think are important to mention. In 1976, The last year of the Gerald Ford administration, there was a a fiasco around the swine flu uh, vaccine. There was uh, fear amongst the entire American medical establishment that this deadly swine flu was reaching our shores. Everybody from the White House to Jonas Salk himself to all of the major medical organizations all got behind a campaign to vaccinate the entire American population. And it turned out that that swine flu strain that they were scared of never really emerged. And as is inevitable when you do mass vaccinations, some people died. They died from Guillain-Barre syndrome. And it was a huge embarrassment to the Ford administration, probably contributed to his loss to Carter in 1976. It was Roundly ridiculed by both the left and the right in America. In in other, you know, it's interesting. You know, the Apollo uh, Moon triumph in 1969 was followed very, very quickly by a loss of interest in in America's space triumphs and uh, more and more rhetoric. Shouldn't we be spending the money, you know, here rather than going to the moon for the fifth time? And then there was a, and I haven't really done research tracing the effect of this, but um, an an almost meltdown of the the Three Mile Island nuclear plant in Pennsylvania. People honestly actually feared that it would lead to a nuclear meltdown. And to the extent that sort of the embrace of American science and uh technology was enhanced by the manhattan project and it the use of of uh you know nuclear technology to win world war ii what the three mile island episode which i think was in 1979 showed um was the only thing nuclear energy is ever going to do for us is get us destroyed you know, it was still a time of of cold War tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. And there were still people who held out hope that at least nuclear technology would lead would be a a clean uh, endless source of of energy in a uh, civilization that was being, you know, kind of like really, pummeled by the oil crisis of the 1970s. And I suspect that Three Mile Island was another dagger in the uh, torso of respect for American science.
0: Hmm. Let's talk a bit about the the legal threats here. What are the court cases that you feel kind of highlight these changes that may be concurrent with... American culture, or maybe kind of run in some ways against it, just because I feel like, you know, culture can be downstream of politics and law, or law can be downstream in some ways of, you know, culture. How do you feel like these two paths ran?
1: Well, you said politics there, but you started your question with courts. So, yes. So let me start with courts and say that, um, Courts in the United States have rarely played a major part in advancing the cause of freedom of therapeutic choice. I make a, I I really emphasize that that doesn't mean that movements for freedom of therapeutic choice aren't constitutional, but they are constitutional in fora other than the courts. Arguably, well, I'll, I'll point out two exceptions to that, okay? One is this remarkable case in the very early 20th century called the magnetic healing case. There was a, uh, institution in, in Missouri, the school of magnetic healing, which again had nothing to do with magnets. It had to do with various types of spiritual he- healing derived from mesmerism and notions of, you know, unseen forces, uh, traveling throughout the atmosphere in our bodies. And the Postal Service tried to bring fraud charges against this very large, very successful institution and ultimately failed because the U.S. Supreme Court held that medical efficacy was, and remember, this is the early 20th century, well before the rise of the adequate and well-controlled clinical trial, which really didn't happen until mid-century. But the Supreme Court said that Medical efficacy is a matter of opinion and not a a suitable ground for government regulation, and so that that was one great uh, medical freedom opinion in in U.S. law. The other one is Roe v. Wade, which some people forget what a medical opinion that was. Justice Blackman, who wrote it, was former general counsel of the Mayo Clinic. It was. Suffused with medical talk. If anything, it was kind of focusing more on freedom of practitioners than freedom of patients originally. But there was a moment in the 1970s, which I examine, where it looked like Roe v. Wade would spin out into a general medical freedom case. And it was applied in uh, cases protecting the right to medical marijuana, protecting the right to acupuncture, and in other interesting contexts. But it never really caught hold in that respect. And, you know, the the last moment for Amer- American medical freedom rhetoric in uh, American courts was really that Abigail Alliance case that, that we discussed uh, at the beginning of our discussion. And, 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 because the very theory of substantive due process has been constricted over the past few decades by conservative jurists. Uh, It turns out that Roe v. Wade and indeed the due process clause in general have not been robust sources for judicial opinions favoring uh, medical freedom of choice.
0: Hmm. A lot of this seemed to come to a head during the uh, during the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and the, the especially the role that the FDA played during the AIDS crisis can you talk a little bit about that and how that factored into to this history
1: the AIDS movement was a hugely influential movement with respect to US drug regulation in ways that are still very much evident today. What's interesting about the AIDS movement is you can argue that it was the first great movement for freedom of therapeutic choice within Orthodox medicine rather than against Orthodox medicine. The AIDS activists, and we're talking now about the 1980s, the the latter part of the 1980s, they didn't reject Pharmaceutical industry, although they they rejected their um their their motives, they didn't reject their technological acumen and accomplishments. Uh, they didn't reject um, orthodox medical principles. Rather, it was a group of kind of self-educated people who weren't physicians and weren't scientists who demanded to be given a seat at the table and um, have a say. In drug regulation um, in a way that would first of all lead to faster regulation, sorry, faster approval of potentially useful therapies, second, to give broader access to drugs that have not been approved yet. And both of these were ultimately instantiated in American regulations and American law. And There ended up being an interesting split within the AIDS activist community itself, with some of the activists, including some of whom are still very vocal on this point, saying you can go too far here and that you can exploit people and take advantage of people and suppress the advance of medical knowledge by too widely disseminating. Drugs before they are demonstrated to be effective through America, through clinical science, and another wing of the movement, which was much more purely libertarian, saying we shouldn't have to, uh, you know, serve as guinea pigs for future generations. We want access to this now. Drugs into bodies, and in any event. as I said, what the AIDS movement was struggling to achieve is largely visible in American statutes and regulations now where it is uh, it, it, it is no longer as difficult to get an unapproved drug as it used to be. And to the degree that it is difficult, um, it's because of industry hesitation, not FDA hesitation. And drug approval has, uh, especially for very severe conditions, is is not the obstacle it used to be. Uh, There's more and more drugs that are approved based on phase two trials, only one trial. And indeed, uh, in recent years, there's even been some controversy about FDA's proclivity to approve drugs based on less than completely robust evidence, for example, an Alzheimer drug. Uh, Alzheimer's drug that was approved a couple of years ago based on surrogate endpoints uh, to great controversy. But that entire notion, by the way, of approving a drug based on surrogate endpoints rather than clinical endpoints was a product of the AIDS era.
0: Hmm. I know your your focus is on uh, America, but I wonder just from what you've seen and read, whether you think that that this History, or this idea of therapeutic choice, the way we treat it here in the United States, is unique to the United States, or whether this concept exists elsewhere. My impression, my initial impression, is that it does not. In particular, I'm thinking about Europe, where it, it just seems like these controversies aren't as, I don't know, as prominent as they are here. I, I'm not even talking about something specific, but I'm sure we could give examples like even, you know, think about abortion or vaccines. It just it seems like that movement isn't as strong there as it seems to be here. what What's your you know, initial kind of thought on that?
1: Well, I haven't done comparative work, but that's certainly my sense. And I mean, it's evident to me in kind of an interesting place, which is, government uh, funding of uh, medical care, medical treatments. Um, Of course, the United States is one of the few developed countries in the world without basically government-run healthcare, although some critics might say that we're now essentially there. Whereas, you know, in Europe, they they crossed that bridge a long time ago. But what I want to point out is that one of the struggles about in in efforts to create national healthcare in America is freedom of therapeutic choice. So I write in my book about a episode where a a cancer drug named Avastin, which was approved for uh, breast cancer as well as a couple of other cancers, FDA was going to withdraw its approval because it had originally been approved. Uh, based on surrogate endpoints, and then follow-up clinical studies suggested it wasn't having the uh, desired effect uh, in terms of of clinical endpoints. And uh, FDA was proposed to withdraw approval of Avastin for breast cancer. But the important point is that it was still available. It was still available because it was still approved for colorectal cancer and another cancer, I forget which one, and was still available to be prescribed off-label. American doctors are allowed to prescribe drugs off-label for anything they want. So what what was it that led to these emotional vociferous hearings where people were saying, you know, this is a death panel trying to take away my life, my freedom, my choice. It was a dispute about whether or not insurance would pay for it. It, was, it wasn't about whether or not the drug was available. It was about whether insurance could pay for it. And it was conservatives to a large degree who are generally in favor of limited government who seem to be advocating for a system in which, well, if you're going to have reimbursement, you can't make any choices. You have to reimburse you know, everything with even an inkling of a possibility that it's going to help people. To me, that's a very uniquely American phenomenon. I mean, to me, that argument is so unbelievably American in its paradox, in its, it it is almost inscrutable, but, but really, really emblematic to me of how America will have trouble ever coming up with any kind of national healthcare system and to me you would never see that in any other country on
0: earth and that brings me to my my last question for you because it it, it does seem at the last few decades that the idea of health insurance insurance coverage where are we going to find the money for these therapies has become just more and more of an issue as our you know as the share of gdp of you know healthcare as a share of gdp's is- that healthcare takes up grows you know, almost exponentially. I mean, it, our, our, the financials of the healthcare system are so defunct. How do you feel like this affects the agitation for therapeutic choice or the, the ideas behind having kind of free reign uh, to choose a therapy?
1: Well, certainly to the extent you're talking about demands for therapeutic choice within the world of orthodox medicine, it is becoming more and more impractical. Just a few days before we're having this discussion, FDA for the first time approved a CRISPR drug. I don't know if you heard that at the end of.
0: For sickle cell, yeah, I think, right? Cell. Yeah.
1: And, you know, it's a fascinating development because, I mean, we could talk about it another time, we could talk about how the entire uh, traditional, now traditional, adequate and well controlled trial has to be completely re envisioned. In order to approve a CRISPR drug. But the other thing is that it is immensely expensive. I mean, astonishingly expensive. So, what does it mean to our society to, on the one hand, make miraculous medical improvements? And I don't know enough about this drug to know whether it is a marginal or or dramatic improvement. I just haven't read enough about it yet. But on the other hand, to make it inaccessible to all but a few people. I mean, therapeutic choice, it's one thing to have the government tell you it, that you cannot buy something or that a physician cannot administer it to you. But, you know, as has been pointed out by, you know, I mean, I, Isaiah Berlin, uh, the, uh, the, the great philosopher said something like, You know, if bread's too expensive, it's the same thing as bread being banned. If you can't access it because you don't have enough money, that's not therapeutic choice. And so I think we're entering an era where at least when it comes to orthodox medicine, the idea of therapeutic choice is running up against some very serious practicalities. And already has, of course. But that being said, what that leads to is enhancement of arguments in favor, not just of alternative therapies, but also cheaper orthodox therapies. So if you look at the libertarian arguments about um, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine during the pandemic. Now, to me, those are fascinating because those were not botanical products. They weren't, you know, healing by prayer. They were FDA approved drugs for other conditions that people embraced as a cure or preventative or treatment for COVID. Why? Why is one orthodox drug, you know, unacceptable, like the vaccine or whatever? But whereas the other one is uh, embraced with such passion. Well, it's it's happening in a political context and. The one thing about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine is they're off patent. They're, they're not on patent anymore. And therefore, big pharma was not making a lot of money from them. And therefore, obviously, there are people who authentically felt that these drugs, despite the absence of evidence, could help them. But you also have to view it in a political context, which is it was a thumb in the eye of big pharma, which is to say, you know yeah, you're not going to make a lot of money from me when I buy generic hydroxychloroquine, but I'm going to insist that I have a right to try it instead of to be compelled to take your newfangled, you know, RNA vaccine. And so I think that even in an age of extreme expense, you can still see freedom of therapeutic choice advocacy popping up in some surprising places.
0: Fascinating stuff. On that note, Louis Grossman, thank you very much for taking the time today. This was great.
1: I really, really enjoyed it, Aaron, and I really appreciate the invitation.
0: Absolutely. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.